We turn in God's inspired word this morning to Romans chapter 8. Since my emeritation, the first of this year, one of the changes is that I no longer have the opportunity to preach series of sermons. So being here for two Sundays, I decided to preach from a portion of Romans 8. Romans 8, beginning at verse 2 this morning, a section that begins the apostle where the apostle paul begins his development of the spirit's work in our sanctification so we read this morning the first 18 verses of romans chapter 8 there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in christ jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. 
for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So far we read this morning from God's authoritative word, the text to which I call your attention this morning is Romans 8 verses 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 sets forth the beautiful truth of the assurance of our salvation as it runs from our justification all the way through to our glorification as seen in the chapter's conclusion. The fundamental and comforting proposition of the Christian life is set forth in the very first verse of this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Though our consciences accuse us and clamor for our condemnation, the sovereign judge, the holy and righteous God, announces over us no condemnation. The only basis for that declaration is that we are in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, as the apostle had written in Romans 3, verse 25. Not only has Christ's perfect righteousness been imputed to us, but by his spirit, he has taken us into his life. Evidenced in the fact that we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So the apostle, having concluded his lengthy instruction concerning our justification, our righteousness in Christ, he concludes that in verse 1 of this chapter now continues his development in the verses that follow. And that's indicated by the connecting word for at the beginning of verse 2. Children and young people, it's always important to notice these connecting words in the Bible. The word for indicates that what follows is a reason, an explanation for what has just been expressed. So we have to consider carefully what is meant here 
What is the connection between verse 2 and what the apostles set forth in that first verse? That's an important question. To fail to answer this question in its proper context has led to serious errors. I'm not going to take the time to consider the various errors of interpretation that have been given this passage, but many of them are variations of this error. We're no longer under condemnation because the Holy Spirit has delivered us from the law of sin and death. He's given us the ability to walk in faithful obedience to God. And on that basis, we're no longer condemned. In other words, deliverance from our condemnation is the result of our being sanctified. We may have nothing to do with that error in thinking. There is not a place in the Bible where the opposite of condemnation is sanctification. The opposite of condemnation is justification. And the basis for that justification, the Apostle Paul has clearly set forth over the previous chapters as being Christ alone. His perfect atonement is the basis for our justification. That righteousness is ours by faith alone. Sanctification is the fruit of justification. Sanctification is a necessary fruit, but a fruit that proceeds necessarily from that justification that is ours in Christ Jesus. And that's true because as we saw at the last part, as we read the last part of verse 1, no condemnation means not only freedom from guilt and its consequences, but freedom also from the enslaving power of sin. The result of the spirit of life in us is that we live in the consciousness of our justification, hearing the word of God to us in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. No condemnation. And by that spirit we walk. We walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So when we face the, connect, the question of the connection established by this little conjunction for, the apostle is continuing the thought expressed in the last part of verse 1, which demonstrates the fruit of the blessed freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. The fruit that flows from that knowledge of faith that seizes as our own God's word no condemnation our justification is evident that living faith that is mine comes to expression I am living proof of God's magnificent work 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the theme that I take from this text this morning is spiritual freedom. And as we consider verses 2 through 4 of Romans 8, I ask you to notice with me, first of all, the nature of that freedom... Secondly, the accomplishment of that freedom. And finally, the purpose of that freedom. So we begin by considering the nature of that spiritual freedom that we confess with the inspired apostle. The freedom of which the text speaks is not the legal freedom which has already been proclaimed by the words no condemnation, and that marks our legal state. But the freedom spoken of here is the spiritual freedom that marks our lives. We now live as those free. That does not imply that we are sinless. It doesn't contradict what, the, what Paul confessed in Romans 7. Although being in Christ, we are perfect in principle, that is, as a small beginning, we have his holiness, yet we still live in this flesh, this sinful flesh. We have need of God's forgiving grace every day. We need to hear in the preaching of the gospel that our sins are forgiven, that there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. But the freedom revealed in verse 2 is found in the life that is now ours. It's the freedom in which we delight in the law of God after the inward man, as Paul confessed in Romans 7 verse 22, and in which we constantly strive to live to God's glory, no longer being a willing slave to sin. That freedom is set forth here by way of a stark contrast. And the contrast is that of the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus over against the law of sin and death. Law standing in opposition to law. That's the contrast in the text. By the one, we are freed from the other. So what are these two laws? Well, let's look first of all at that law of sin and death. There are those who say that this law of sin and death refers to the moral law of God. After all, the apostle had shown that 
The law always condemns us. The law exposes to us the misery of our sin and death. But there's a significant problem with that interpretation. In the first place, while it is true that by the law comes the knowledge of sin and death, the law of God is never referred to in Scripture as the law of sin and death. The law is the law of righteousness. It teaches us the way that we should go. Secondly, verse 2 tells us we've been freed from the law of sin and death. But while Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, Galatians 3 verse 13, we are not free from the moral law. The law continues to be binding upon us, as a rule for a life, our life of gratitude to the God of our salvation. And so, as those redeemed by Christ, we love that law. We delight in the law. We cannot then define this law of sin and death as the moral law of God. The apostle uses the term law here in the same sense that he uses it in Romans 7, verses 21 through 23. I find then a law, notice, a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. When Paul speaks there of a law, he's not referring to a legal code of binding precepts. He's referring to an inward moral principle that directs us from within. In Romans 6 verse 12, the apostle had written, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. That law of sin and death is that which controls the natural man. It's a law in the sense that we speak of the law of gravity. The law of gravity is not a moral law of precepts. It's a power established by God that directs the falling tree to the ground. Ever since the fall and the bondage of death came upon the human race, the person outside of Christ is directed in all his activities away from God and contrary to his revealed will. The sinner is so under the power of sin that that law of sin moves him in the direction of everlasting death. And the power of death so holds him 
Again, not death in terms of inactivity, but in terms of that developing and rotting decay, that death so holds him that his desires and thoughts, his actions and speech are directed by that power that holds him in bondage. And to make clear, because man's created nature didn't change in the fall, and he remains a rational, willing, moral creature, a thinking man, this law of which the apostle speaks doesn't force him against his will as the law of gravity will pull me to the ground if the ladder falls out from under me. The sinner is willingly bound to the law of sin and death. From that law of sin and death, I have been freed, says the apostle. Another law has usurped that law of sin and death, namely, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There has been a radical change from the situation of bondage that once held us. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We have been freed from the law of sin and death, liberated by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That life has to be understood as the opposite of death. Indeed, the victory over death. Because this law also speaks of that inward spiritual principle that directs our hearts, our minds, our will. The direction of our life is now toward the living God. Christ is life. In him we live. In Christ, that is by faith in him, we live our lives loving him, longing to do his will, seeking him, serving him in the very activity of our lives. Yes, that love for him, that serving him, must still come to expression through our old sinful nature. That old man, the flesh. But that old man doesn't define us anymore. Life in Christ is what defines us, what directs us. The author of this life, is the Holy Spirit. That life is in Christ Jesus. It is the Spirit 
sent by God into our hearts. Galatians 4 verse 6. Who unites us to Christ through regeneration. Establishing that bond of faith which is the gift of God. The Spirit of Christ works in us that knowledge of faith by which we now know that we are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit applies to us all the benefits of that life that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so works in us both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. It is the spirit of life in Christ Jesus by whom we live. The spirit, therefore, is the one who liberates us from sin and death, changing the direction of our thoughts, our desires, our hopes, our outward deeds. Let's remember To be in bondage to the law of sin and death is to be dead in trespasses and sins. A man in bondage might be committed to reforming himself for his own sake. For example, a man in the bondage of prison serving time for a a criminal act or series of criminal acts might come to the realization that his life is being wasted behind the bars of the prison. He might be committed to changing his behavior when he gets out. But he's still in prison. And when a man is a slave to sin and death, he can't free himself. Such slavery, after all, isn't merely physical slavery... It's spiritual slavery. Only the spirit of life in Christ Jesus can give such freedom. Such is the wonder enabling us to confess. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. The accomplishment of that freedom is established in verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. Once again, with that word for... The Apostle is giving us the explanation of that which he just stated in verse 2. And in doing so, he's not setting forth anything new. The Apostle is really reaffirming what he had written previously in Romans 5 verse 10. For if, when we were enemies... We were reconciled unto God by the death of his Son. Much more being reconciled, 
we shall be saved by his life. But the way in which he sets forth the truth here is very interesting. In the first place, here he speaks of the law. The reference now is to the moral law. Think not merely of the Ten Commandments, but the whole demand of those Ten Commandments as set forth in the summary given us by Christ. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Secondly, he speaks of what the law could not do. The law could not do what only Christ alone could do, namely condemn sin in the flesh. Now to understand that, we have to realize that the apostle here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, personifies sin and presents sin as a tyrant, a tyrannical master over us. He doesn't refer to sin, therefore, as man's activity, but he speaks of it as a spiritual ethical power that rules over him. If you were to take that last reference to sin in verse 3 as a reference to our sinful actions, then certainly the law condemns sin. Because our sinful actions are the violations of the law and therefore stand condemned by the law. So again, in this last clause of verse 3, which speaks of God condemning sin and doing what the law could not do, sin is personified as a tyrant who reigns over us, holds us in bondage. It ruled over us. And because of the fall, it had a right to rule over us. And that by the sentence of God himself. The wages of sin is death. That law could not free us. The law could not condemn that tyrant and break his rule over us. And why could not the law do that? Because the law can only demand from us. The law demands obedience, perfect obedience. The law demands that we love the Lord our God perfectly. The law also threatens with death all disobedience. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. That's the law. When the text says, moreover, that the law was weak through the flesh, it is acknowledging that our sinfulness 
render the law powerless to free us from the bondage of sin and the curse. That tyrant, sin, cannot be condemned by the law. The law cannot say to sin, you have no right to rule over him, over her. In these sinners' relationship to me, they've demonstrated time and time again. They've disobeyed God. They've offended him beyond measure. The law can only say sin. You have the right to rule over him, over her. Sin, you are right. Whoever sins is a slave to you. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. So the law could only hold us in bondage. That's the devastating reality of our relationship to the law. Until the Spirit freed us. What the law could not do, God did. God condemned sin in the flesh. He did so by sending his own son in the likeness of our sinful flesh and for sin. Think of how amazing this is. What the law could not do, God did. What we could not possibly accomplish, salvation by the works of the law, God accomplished. He condemned sin. He rebuked her and deprived her of her right and power to rule. Get the picture before your mind. Sin, as a person, that's how it's presented here, stands before the righteous judge, almighty God. Sin argues her case. She claims the right to dominion over the whole human race. She insists that man, you and I, are in her power. That we are her slaves. And she is our master by right. And she, that is sin carries the legal support she needs in the courtroom. She has in her hands God's law. She appeals to that law. She appeals to the specific code that condemns to death. Spiritual bondage. The soul that sins. And so she insists that God's own law consigns the sinner to her dominion. Again, the law can't make that claim. The law, in fact, supports her claim. It exposes the sinfulness of the flesh. 
And as the defendants in that courtroom, that's the devastating position in which we find ourselves. Except for this, there is therefore now no condemnation. But how? God sending his own son in the likeness of our sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. God issued the verdict that sin had no right to rule. He stripped her of her claim to dominion and condemned her But the accomplishment of that freedom came to us in an astounding way. God sent his own son in the likeness of our sinful flesh and for sin. That's how he condemns sin in the flesh. He alone did what we could never do. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, took upon himself our human nature, a human nature subject to all the effects of the fall, of sin, and while remaining perfectly sinless and holy, he subjected himself to the sorrow and grief the pain and suffering of our fallen human nature. He gave himself to death. He did so for sin, not for his own, for your sin and mine. He satisfied the justice of God, living in perfect obedience even to the death of the cross. That's what it took for that power of sin to be broken, for the curse of the law to be abolished, for the dominion of sin to be busted. He took all the guilt of those given him by the Father before the foundation of the world, And he blotted it out. That's the wonder of the atonement. The perfect satisfaction of Christ. And because our guilt has been removed, the power of sin has no right to rule over us any longer. That spiritual freedom in Christ Jesus, is ours by faith alone. That spiritual freedom is not ours by faith and works, but by faith alone. As the Apostle has emphasized previously, our works contribute nothing to our spiritual freedom. Through faith alone, we receive Christ and all his benefits. And that faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, freely given by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. 
But now notice, the text doesn't stop there. The text doesn't end here. Verse 4 calls our attention to the purpose of that spiritual freedom that Christ has given by his spirit. God will see to it that that spiritual freedom comes to expression to the glory of his grace. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. Now notice that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The spiritual freedom God has given us in Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit is a freedom from the power of sin that God might be glorified. We have to maintain that God-centered focus in our perspective of the Christian life The Christian life is a life of activity. Sanctification speaks of holy activity. The Bible very often puts it in terms of walking. Walking. Walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit, verse 4. It uses that term to denote all the activity of our lives. We walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. But remember, the spirit testifies of Christ. Jesus said in John 16, verse 14, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. To walk after the Spirit, therefore, is to walk with a single eye upon the glory of our Redeemer. And therefore the glory of God himself and in thankfulness to him. And how shall we glorify the God of our salvation? Only by living in harmony with and obeying his will. That is why the apostle uses the language he does in verse 4. Again, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of his work of saving us and of freeing us from the law of sin and death, is that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. This is a tremendously important concept for us to understand and embrace by faith. The text is not speaking of our justification. The apostle has made a transition of setting forth a wonderful truth of our justification, concluding that in verse 1, 
to the wonderful effects of our justification by the work of the Holy Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So the apostle is speaking now of the wonder of our sanctification. Justification was the great theme in the chapters preceding Romans 8, concluding at verse 1 of this chapter. Now the truth of our sanctification will be developed, concluding in our glorification. So the apostle speaks of the Christian life. When the apostle therefore says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, we must not make the mistake of reading that this way, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled for us as if he's referring to the righteousness of the law fulfilled by the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross. We realize, as the apostle has set forth clearly previously, that Christ, in his work of reconciliation, paid our debt and so fulfilled the law of God. It's that truth upon which is established the verdict of no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. But the point here is that not only has our Savior established the righteousness of the law for us and in our place, but that he also fulfills the righteousness of the law in us. Remember, every single word in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of verbal inspiration. Word for word inspiration. Every word is important. The Holy Spirit did not inspire the Apostle Paul to write in verse 4 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled for us. The Holy Spirit did not inspire the Apostle Paul to write that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled concerning us or with respect to us. It's another Greek term that would have been used were that the case. But the spirit of life in Christ Jesus gives us spiritual freedom that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That emphasizes that the wonder of salvation is such That not only does God change our legal status, declaring us not guilty on the basis of the perfect righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Christ, but that he also changes us spiritually by giving us the life of Christ, a life by which we are made new creatures, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. 
being one with Christ by that living bond of faith, all our life flows from him to the glory of God the Father. We now draw our life from him. As the Spirit works in us, we are enabled to fulfill the righteous demands of the law. So we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. So we desire to express our gratitude to God, to glorify Him in all our activity. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. But notice how carefully this truth is set forth in verse 4. The text does not say that we might fulfill the righteousness of the law. It says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. And when you ask the question, fulfilled by whom? As you must. The answer is, by God, through the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. God is the author of our salvation from beginning to end. That's our assurance too. The apostle will develop that thought later in the chapter in verses 29 through 31. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Again, God's purpose in our salvation is that we be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God never abandons that work in us whom he has united to his son by the living bond of faith. We draw our life out of him. You do, don't you? We bear the fruit of faith, not walking after the flesh, but after the spirit. We bear that fruit Indeed, consciously, willingly, that belongs to the activity of faith. But that we bear that fruit and receive the blessedness thereof is the work by the work of the Holy Spirit in us as the fruit of Christ's purchase. So in our whole life, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us to the glory of God's grace. Yes, we have only a small beginning, 
of that new obedience. That's our confession because we know all too well that the sin that still dwells in our members, the sinfulness of our natures, pollutes all our actions. The works of the law could never save us. But our spiritual freedom and the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who lives within us brings us to daily repentance, moves us to confess our sins before God, to fight against the sinfulness of our natures, and to live to God's glory. Salvation from beginning to end is through the Lord of glory, God's exalted Son, and ministered to us by His Holy Spirit. To God alone be all the glory now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus through faith. And we thank Thee that by the work of Thy Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living and exalted Christ, Thou dost continue Thy work in us to the glory of thy name and grace for Jesus' sake. Amen.